Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators since the NAFSA conference last week in Denver, Colorado. So we hope you're all rested and recovered from your exploits at the conference. I know for me, it was one of the... Uh, uh, more fulfilling weeks of my year. Uh, every year when NAFSA has been in person, it's been uh, kind of the one, one, one area I, I look forward to more than, more conference I look forward to more than anything else, just because of the volume of people. And even though there were only 6,000 out of a traditional 12,000 person conference the last time it was in DC in 2019, uh, even though there were only, it was only half full, uh, we really, I think everyone who was there really benefited in, incredibly uh, by uh, the, the conversations that were had. And what, a, what an incredible week. And um, hopefully you're rested and recharged and ready for what's ahead uh, in international education as we move into the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. So as we do each week, for those not familiar with the Roundup, we take our stories from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, uh, on Monday mornings. And that is uh, from called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And that's social media and international education news. That's the, what we do here at SMIE Consulting and is the foundation of uh, what we share in that newsletter. We bring five or six uh, stories on the social media side, 15, 20 stories on the international ed side, and oftentimes where those overlap. And we talk about them uh, in the newsletter, our hot takes on the news stories of the day. But we also have take the chance uh, during uh, uh, through our roundup here on Wednesdays, we go a little bit more in depth into the uh, kind of the key topics of the day. So I posted all the links to uh, our website where you can subscribe to the newsletter, uh, the most recent edition uh, that comes out if you subscribe through the, the website, and also the LinkedIn version of that newsletter. So uh, I encourage you to subscribe if you're not already. Uh, so you can get that news on Monday mornings so that uh, by the time Wednesday rolls around, you have a pretty good idea on what we might be talking about today on the Roundup. So let's get right into our first story. And the question is, what does the future hold for aggregators? And this has been a particularly keen, uh, important question and conversation to have on many college campuses that have been perhaps working with uh, educational agents for a number of years uh, and or exploring that for the first time. You're being uh, thrown a number of different topics like agent aggregators and super agents and master agents and sub agents and kind of understanding what the landscape is. And these agent aggregators uh, fall in, uh, into categories that are some primarily, I think you will see with uh, most of the agent aggregators out there tend to be more tech-based, platform-based systems. Uh, you look at your reply boards, your Educos, uh, Adventus, uh, maybe getting the study portals, but they're, they're not really an agency, uh, super agent. They are an agent aggregator. They have a portal, but they charge agent rates for students that matriculate from them. Uh, so that's um, all in that category on, on agent aggregators. You look at what they do, and uh, the reason I bring this question up today is there was an article in University World News uh, called Return to Normality. Is it crunch time for aggregators? And uh, one of the authors of the article, uh, both Louise Nickel and Alan Priest, uh, I've gotten to know over the last couple of years uh, with the, some of their work and uh, research on uh, everything from agents to the war in Ukraine and uh, the, the topics that impact international education, obviously. But uh, they um, argue in the piece that uh, 
the as a result of uh, NAFSA returning in person, as a result of things returning to new normals, whatever that looks like, uh, you think about uh, what uh, parents, what uh, students are eager to do more of in, in the coming year, more that uh, for the next class of students coming up that are going to be making decisions on where to go for university. Uh, the questions that they're asking are, um, I, are perhaps best answered in person, uh, that they would prefer to have the in-person opportunities to talk about uh, their college plans and that uh, organizations like agent aggregators that rely so heavily on the tech side of things uh, to, uh, to make their business tick over and, and make their uh, uh, keep their agents happy that are sending their students to them, uh, to, to their platform. You wonder if uh, these aggregators will still have the cachet now that it, it may no longer be essential to do everything online. Uh, and that's, uh, the balance is, is, is always the rub when it comes to um, finding that right mix internationally in your recruitment strategy. Uh, for most, uh, before aggregators existed, uh, you did your recruitment one of three ways. You uh, relied solely on armchair recruitment by uh, uh, working on uh, social media. You worked on uh, worked on online presence, driving people to your site, and having conversations that way uh, because you didn't have the budget to travel. You potentially did in-country travel where you would go on recruitment tours, but uh, there's a limit to how much you can do, how many countries you could get to, and budget obviously uh, limits that altogether. Uh, so that is a second option. A third option is having in-country representation. Uh, and that can be done a number of different ways, and agents have been probably have grown into uh, one of the major, uh, the major ways U.S. institutions and other countries around the world are doing this as well, using in-country reps to uh, either through agents, through alumni, through hires of the university, third parties uh, can have uh, hire in-country reps for you to manage your application and interests from uh, students in particular countries or regions. So all those are different models of in-country representation. And you might have a mix of all three. And the healthy institutions probably that have been doing it a while see value in uh, not only having institutional reps go to uh, visit certain regions, certain countries, uh, having a, a robust digital presence, social media to uh, do the armchair recruitment as well as having in-country representation. Obviously you can't have that everywhere. Uh, no agency even has offices everywhere, but you can get a, a fairly broad spectrum of countries represented through agents. Now, what aggregators do is something different uh, because as an institution, you're not working directly with students. Uh, you're working through, or you may be working directly with students once they apply, and aggregators will make the pitch that the real benefit of what they do is that they're sending you qualified applications. You're only going to get those that are truly uh, interested in your institution and not get a lot of fluff. Uh, the reality um, might be different uh, depending on your institution. You might be flooded with applications right now, uh, depending on what the sources of those are. Some might be from agents, some might be from aggregators, some might be from uh, institutional partners, whatever. But there may be a lot of fluff in there. And it's, you need to figure out for, for your own institution what that mix is. Uh, is Where's that fluff coming from? If it's a huge time suck for your staff, uh, if it's uh, taking away resources from that could be uh, devoted to uh, better uh, enrolling the students that are serious about your institution and finding that mix, uh, then that's something you need to do. So the article uh, that Luis and Alan wrote really talks about 
that these study portals, these ar algorithms, the use of artificial intelligence, blockchain, machine learning, all of these things that uh, they, they say are potentially suffering the same fate as mass and social distancing. They were, and this is a quote from the article, they were essential and sometimes mandated during the early part of the pandemic, but are now in many cases matters of choice and in some countries have become very much second best to personal contact. And I would say that in many cases that is the, that is the case, that uh, in the best case scenario, uh, which uh, we had before the pandemic, if, that were, if, if you can call it that, uh, to what we're moving to with this new normal, is people still prefer, as is evidence from the NAFSA conference, they prefer to meet in person. Uh, that they prefer to have those interactions where real business can get done, that uh, where the real understanding can take place. And that is something that's uh, right now with the need for more in-person, the need and desire to engage with humans uh, and particularly representatives of institutions, that is an overriding drive, I think. And that may or may not have an impact on how successful aggregators will be that are entirely uh, based on uh, platform uh, decisions, uh, platform uh, presence. So we'll see what happens with this. And I think the competition uh, will come most in the, in, the, in the next few years from those that, um, the, from the high-tech uh, companies that have invested so much in AI and blockchain and machine learning and all of this. Uh, we'll, we'll see a, a conflict between high-tech and high-touch. Uh, and they make that point in the article here that uh, you look at what's happened uh, with some of the pathway providers over the years and how they have uh, gone big, and then they've seen some serious retractions. The pandemic certainly impacted that. They've been forced to change their models, business models, on how they do things. Uh, the path these pathway providers relied on huge networks of agents to uh, funnel students into their uh, pathway programs in the various countries that they operate. So we'll see what happens with this, but from a, when you look at it from a human perspective, uh, from a student perspective, that yes, uh, hopefully you will have guidance from these platforms that will get, get a list of uh, applicant, uh, places that they can apply to and be uh, successful in, but you don't always get uh, that. Uh, when if you if it's impersonal if uh, you're going to really have a conversation with a student and get to know them as an agent might or as a counselor might as a uh, um, a, a particular rep representative for for an institution getting to know a student well and have a face-to-face -face conversation what does that look like uh, there's we'll see what happens but there's going to be some real gaps that will will spring up in these um, these high-tech models that uh, can't be replicated elsewhere, uh, that, that, will, that can't be replaced, I should say. Uh, those gaps aren't, can't be replaced with technology. So uh, in, this, in a newer environment where there are more options open and, and, more, uh, and students will vote with their feet. Will they vote with their feet to go to an in-person agent or, or in-country representative, or will they vote with their f fingers and, and click away on uh, to high-tech uh, high-tech platforms that will get them uh, answers quickly and easily and perhaps uh, in some ways uh, quicker uh, and more refined and less effort perhaps but we'll see what uh, where that where that will all shake out now what will 
be interesting to see is uh, in the future for these aggregators. Then again, um, I've worked. I'm working with institutions that uh, work with aggregators, uh, work with master agents, super agents, mom and pop shop agents, ARC certified agent groups. So I I, I know the kinds. The playing field is very has gotten very diverse and very muddied, frankly, and it's hard to really distinguish between one group of. Uh, of, uh, of actors and others uh, sometimes, and uh, what category do you f fit into? Having those conversations last week in NAFSA with different agent groups, and uh, they sometimes they don't necessarily want to share or, or, or want to be able to pitch, be pitch and hold that way. And how they distinguish themselves is always going to be the real selling point. So an, a very fascinating uh, topic of agent aggregators and what their future may be uh, now that we're returning to normal. Uh, but closely related to that is the second question of the day. And that is one that is particularly important for me uh, because I've been on both sides of this. And is there a talent war in international education right now? Uh, there was a Pi News article that I've just dropped the link in the chat on Facebook and YouTube, and I'll do that later on LinkedIn and Twitter. But uh, the this article really uh, helps kind of summarize a lot of the, what's happened during the pandemic with uh, departures uh, from in, from the institutional side and there are sort of lots of different reasons uh, there's there's a lot of institutions that when the pandemic hit they, they realized they were going to need to tighten some belts and uh, they realized international enrollments were going to be infected impacted negatively uh, they cut uh, international staff uh, that oftentimes they would cut senior staff and you had a number of institutions that lost decades of experience and leadership in international education uh, during the pandemic. Uh, some were forced retirement, early retirements. Some were forced. Some were really, um, really sad, sad cases where they, the person might have uh, passed away from COVID or have serious health complications because of COVID because they got it. But the reality is, what's happened uh, though there there has been a lot of leadership. An experience that's been lost from the institutional side uh, in international education, particularly on the student recruitment side. Now, you could say, um, I'm sure my colleagues on education abroad side would say the same thing. But when you look at what, just for example, last week at NAFSA, 6,000 people there, 40% of those that were attending were first timers, first time NAFSA attendees, 40% of that population that attended that conference. And that speaks volumes, frankly. Um, we know, obviously, travel restrictions impacted a number of countries, particularly China, who basically sent five people. And those people had been living outside of China since the pandemic began, so they were able to come. Uh, but there, were, there weren't any Chinese institutions represented. There was no China Pavilion. CEAIE wasn't represented in the, in, the, in the exhibit hall or in the attendee list. They just didn't send anybody. And that's a huge loss for international education uh, in, uh, in an environment where China obviously is the number one sender of students abroad. Uh, that uh, you see uh, what's happened in, um, in the U.S. Uh, with the, the folks that have left the, left the profession entirely or changed uh, dramatic roles at, at their institutions to maybe keep a small finger in the international pie, but it's not what they do anymore predominantly. You see... Uh, on the other side of the coin, you see a lot of the smarter ed tech firms uh, that have been flooding the market on the service provider side have uh, hoovered up in the in the uh, in the British slang, hoovered up the the best talent, uh, and there's been some of that as well. So you've had these uh, forced departures, you've had uh, early retirements, you've had 
uh, education companies, uh, service provider companies, kind of hiring out some of these people that have left their positions or lured away because of uh, opportunities that uh, they provided in the private sector. Uh, and going to the dark side, it uh, it has its appeals on on on, on face value and some, for some people, uh, getting outside of the bureaucracy of institutions, you just end up having to deal with a different kind of bureaucracy within uh, ed tech firms or other companies that have different expectations and reporting and uh, sales goals and all that wonderful stuff that you have to deal with on that side. So the talent war is real, and I think. Uh, institutions have been on the losing side of that talent war for a number of years. Uh, and this, is, this goes back 15, 20 years really. Uh, when you started to see in the early 2000s, post 9-11, you started to see, uh, for example, the Expo Hall at NAFSA would uh, increasingly grow and grow, not just beyond the study, the study consortium sites or, or booths or the country country pavilions, whatever you might have. You started to see every every type of service provider, from study abroad service providers to international student services uh, ser providers to all sorts of recruitment providers. Uh, recruitment service providers uh, offering their services through the Expo Hall. It became a very commercial business, and that's the reality of international education over the last 20 years. It has fundamentally changed. Uh, that the reality is uh, these service providers can now and often do and uh, well, uh, they fill roles that previously were done exclusively, exclusively by institutions. And that's happened as a result of institutions who have, frankly, uh, cut staff in international offices or recruitment offices to the point where they don't have the ex internal expertise or budget to do everything themselves. Uh, that's just not physically possible in most cases anymore. Uh, you've seen um, institutions uh, that have, uh, over the past two years, uh, we've had two major East Coast institutions cut their entire international recruitment staff. This, the, in the case of Johnson & Wales, a couple of years ago, uh, they cut their entire tr uh, recruitment staff, international staff, uh, kind of got out of that part of the game for a while. Uh, then just this past month, you had Southern New Hampshire University that had heavily invested in staff that were working remote uh, to recruit international students. Uh, five or six people were cut, uh, lost their jobs as a result of and maybe, maybe poor decisions at the institutional level, I don't know. But the, when you see colleagues repeat, repeatedly burned by uh, institutions deciding to get out, uh, you can understand why they might be lured by the dark side uh, uh, to the service provider side. Because the reality is there, there's a need that these service providers fill and meet uh, where institutions might have once done it on their own, they can't anymore. They don't have the bandwidth internally and certainly staff-wise, budget-wise, what it would take for them to replicate what these service providers can do for a, a fraction of the cost or, or a good percentage of the cost, depending on the, on the provider. You see that these, um, uh, these, these providers are meeting a need in the market. And that will always be there now uh, because I don't see the pendulum swinging all the way back over to fully staffed international offices that can do everything in-house. That just frankly isn't possible anymore. anymore. The world's too big and there are too many opportunities and too many markets and no one person or one group of people will really have the expertise to get all of that done themselves. So the talent war is real in international ed and it's not getting any prettier. Uh, certainly. 
some of um, it's you've had I mentioned institutions that have uh, cut staff. There's also been service providers that have during the pandemic, especially pathway providers had uh, uh, cut half. Uh, one of the major U.S. pathway providers cut more than half their staff a couple times in in 2018, and then again in 2020. Uh, you've seen um, one provider that uh, was particularly strong in India, offering in-country representation uh, and hiring staff for that purpose uh, to, to manage uh, student interest there. Uh, you see them uh, cutting a number of their staff in the weeks leading up to NAFSA, so, uh, where they didn't even have a presence at NAFSA this year. So there's a lot of that going on, and it's something that I think uh, is, it, it's, it, it, there's attrition on both sides. The pandemic's impacted everybody differently. But on the institutional level and on the service provider level, you've seen some real carnage, uh, frankly. And it's not uh, going to end anytime soon. Maybe there's going to be some stabilization in the next year or two. But there's a lot of, a lot of dead wood in there that uh, will get shook out uh, on the service provider side and probably on the institutional side still as uh, smaller players that uh, were vainly uh, ho holding on hope that they could bring in a class and keep uh, things ticking over on the international side are going to probably do what a number of institutions did during the pandemic and cut staff again. So it's a sad state of affairs, but a reality that we're all facing. And one that I think um, uh, it's going to be with us for a while. And the, uh, the fallout from the pandemic is going to have, well, just like long COVID, there, there's some people and some institutions, some businesses that are going to be feeling the impacts of the pandemic for years. Uh, the ones that will uh, thrive are the ones that can move quickly can make the right hires and invest in the right people and uh, have a good balance of internal and external uh, help to get things done. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mystery mix uh, and uh, a recipe to get that done right, but those who can are, are certainly going to be ahead of the game in that respect. So yes, there is a talent war and it is not over and it's not pretty. But let's move on to our final question of the day, and that has to do with our friends uh, in New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand has had uh, kind of an underdog story for a number of years. Uh, they have been uh, kind of a little engine that could. Uh, they're not, uh, have never been a huge destination in terms of physical numbers. I think they got up to maybe 30,000 at one point uh, international students uh, studying in New Zealand, but they've never uh, really, they don't have the capacity, frankly. There are eight institutions and uh, a number of uh, Voc Tech schools or uh, polytechnics. So uh, you really are in a situation in New Zealand where there's uh, limited numbers uh, that they can handle uh, in terms of institutional capacity for international students. They have, back in the day, probably going back seven, eight, nine, ten years, they were actually very, they had a very coordinated national effort, uh, Education New Zealand lots, and there was recruitment strategies, uh, that investment in uh, promotional campaigns and really driving interest to New Zealand as um, maybe a friendlier Australia uh, destination uh, comparing to their other colleagues down under. But you saw with the Kiwis uh, a real uh, friendliness uh, and a real f focus on uh, personalization and quality uh, that you probably weren't going to get anywhere else. Uh, and that had great appeal. Uh, they have one of the safest, uh, one of the least corrupt governments uh, and countries in the world. So that has particular appeal. They use that in their marketing. 
I used to do uh, quarterly reports for my colleagues at the British Council IELTS on uh, how each country was perceived and what some of their benefits were and certainly the pe uh, peace and uh, being peaceful and being one of the more least corrupt countries in the world that had appeal and that was always something that resonated with uh, future student markets. But what you see now with New Zealand, they were in a really strong groove uh, in, the, in the teens. 2000s, um, and they've really had really built up their reputation. Uh, but what has happened? And the pandemic has, as I, like I said earlier, it has impacted uh, countries very differently depending on how the gov their governments responded, depending on how institutions could respond if they had any control over what was said or what directions the country was going. But you look at New Zealand now. I posted a couple stories. Uh, one was about the reopening of New Zealand's borders. And that's right, New Zealand's borders have not yet reopened to international students. They have had a couple of trials of 50 students here, 50 students there, uh, seemed to go well. They went through quarantine and all the rigmarole that you had to go through back while the pandemic was still raging. But they are not opening their borders until July 31st, July 31st. And what they've done is they've set a limit of 5,000 students in this first tranche of uh, returning students, and that's who they give priority to, returning students to come, who are looking to get back in country to finish their degrees. Students who have been outside the country for, for the last two and a half years. Uh, this, um, this, what's happened in New Zealand is you see uh, they, their academic year starts February, March, uh, so they shut down right at the beginning of the pandemic and haven't had new international students in since. Those who were locked out and haven't gotten back in yet, uh, they're the ones that are being in the first tranche of uh, returnees uh, are coming starting in June, July 31st, after July 31st when the borders reopen. The problem is uh, they have gotten only 10% of those 5,000 spots filled by students wanting to return in terms of those that have gone through the visa process and gotten uh, their documents updated. So we're looking at less than 10% of the 5,000. So less than 500 international students are, 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 have made plans to return to New Zealand uh, after July 31st when the borders reopen. That's embarrassing. And you look at what's happened, uh, and I, I've, I've talked about this regularly on the Roundup in terms of the impact of closed borders uh, beyond what what were happening in in, uh, in 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 other Western countries, and you look, uh, we've we've seen what's happened in Australia. They've not gotten nearly the volume that they were expecting when they reopened in February. Uh, you see, China still closed. They're doing little groups of 50 or 200 uh, coming back in to finish their studies, uh, approving them, uh, but not necessarily letting them enter yet. Just saw something uh, from uh, from China that uh, Duke Kunshan. Uh, it, it, for the first time, we'll have 100 students able to return to complete their studies or continue their studies. So those three countries, uh, China, Australia, New Zealand, have had significant reputational damage done because they delayed reopening. Um, there's a lot of other issues in the mix in Australia in terms of employment, in terms of um, vocational students uh, kind of coming only for employment and only a pathway to residency rather than education, even caring about getting their education. So there's a lot that's going on in a, a myriad of issues, but you see the three countries that have been slowest to open 
of the ones who are reputationally suffering now and will have lingering impacts for years to come. Australia, uh, maybe three, four years before they get back up to where they need to be pre-pandemic. You see New Zealand, they're looking 2030, as some of their prognosticators said early on, that's how long it's going to take them to recover. China, who knows how long it's going to take them to recover because they have done their, themselves no favors with their uh, zero COVID policy. And uh, what's happened in Shanghai that seems to be easing up now, the damage has already been done. And you have not only international students that there are still some that want to return and finish their degree because they want to finish what they started. They value what they can get out of their education there. But uh, there are those that are turned off completely because they can't. Uh, they might have wanted to start their studies in China for the last two and a half years, but aren't going to be able to uh, in any real way until 2023 at the earliest. So we're seeing a lot of uh, challenges in countries that have decided to reopen late, and New Zealand is certainly not uh, alone, not a, a immune from the, those challenges. They are uh, they handled the pandemic really well early on. Got a lot of high praise for it, as did China, for what at least the West could see of what was going on in China. You see what's happening now uh, with New Zealand, and it's sad. Um, you've seen some reactions against international uh, post-pandemic that, that now the government is focusing. And this statement, I think, tells you everything you need to know about where New Zealand's headed right now. They're focusing on value over volume or quality over quantity uh, in terms of the, for international students because they've had pushback by uh, locals that are, are not wanting uh, the country to invest so heavily and allow, open so many doors for international students to work after they're done with their studies. So that's a big deal, and that will have some long-lasting com complications for them. So uh, sorry to hear that from my uh, Kiwi friends, but uh, I, I wish you all the best as you, as you struggle through this and try to get back to some sense of normalcy. But that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. We really appreciate you being a part of the conversation. And for those that uh, we met last week in NAFSA, thank you for being a part of that, uh, that journey. Uh, hope you're, hopefully you've recovered and recharged your batteries for the, for the battles ahead. And we're looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation. So until next week, we wish you all the very best and have a wonderful day. Cheers. <music>